I'd like to share with you some statistics that I think paint a picture of the kind of time we're living in right now. Since the pandemic began, 32% of Christians have not attended church, either online or in person. That's according to the Barna Research Group. 50% of millennial Christians haven't participated in online worship. One in seven churchgoers have actually switched churches during the pandemic. And 18% of churchgoers are watching more than one church's service. Now, we can debate whether these are positive or negative factors for the life of the church, but I think most agree that things are not at all like they were. And no one knows where they're leading. I mean, the church is facing all kinds of pressures and stress from the outside and even on the inside. The mental health situation in the country is very, uh, it's dire. I read just this morning that calls to mental health helplines are up 900%. And that the rate of depression is three times the rate of, of, uh, of depression in any other national crisis that we've experienced. Of course, we know the economic fallout. We know the social injustice that is evident and the unrest that it's, is going on with all of that. So that's all of our situation right now. <clears throat> And in light of that, we might come to a letter like Philippians, this nice little happy letter, right? And think, what in the world could it have to offer to us living in such a unique moment? And if we think that way, then it just shows that we don't understand the truth of it, actually. Because we might say now that the New Testament letters have more resonance with the church in this age than they've had in many years. Now, they've always been the word of God to the church, but our situation is not so removed in terms of its challenge from the world of Paul in the first century. I mean, Philippians is a joyful letter. I, I said last week it's been referred to as Paul's happiest, and that's, that's great, right? But it doesn't mean the situation is easy for Paul or for this church. Paul was in prison somewhere, not exactly sure, but he's there on a capital charge, meaning he can be put to death at any time. The church he was writing to is one that he knew well. He planted it. He nurtured it. He loved the people dearly. In fact, in the passage that was read today, he calls them my joy and crown. He was their pastor, mentor. He was their father in God, as we say in the Anglican tradition. And his letter here, although a great encouragement generally to churches, in various situations down the centuries, I think speaks to some specific challenges that the believers in Philippi are facing. And sometimes it's good to get a little sense of that uh, in order to understand what Paul is encouraging them in. For one thing, Philippi is a Roman city. Uh, Not many Jews there. Greeks, some, Italians brought in who lived there, and this was a city that practiced the cult of the emperor. In other words, it would have been expected for a good citizen of Philippi to make offerings to Emperor Nero, in this case, as Lord and Savior. That was actually the the language, kyrios and soter, Lord and Savior. And refusal to do so would have resulted in various levels of persecution. When Paul affirms the lordship of Jesus in this letter, as he does over and over again, it's important for us to hear that against what they were going to deal with in their everyday lives. And we 
should understand a little of what it cost the church to do that. And the several mentions of suffering going on in the church. This appears to be the cause. They're in a difficult place and time with pressures from without. But there are also some internal pressures that they're facing. There seems to be some posturing going on from different factions in the church. Concern about that. This gives rise to Paul's language about humility. Especially as he holds up the humility of Jesus as a model for the church in chapter 2. Specifically, we hear him address the disagreement among two leaders. Those he treats as friends and co-laborers, urging them to unity. Commentator Gordon Fee says that the situation in Philippi is serious, but not disastrous. <laughs> There's something about that that made me smile when I read it, because it helps me understand it probably has something to share with us in our current situation, which could be said to be serious, maybe not disastrous yet. It's full of challenge, but also there are opportunities and gifts in this season for us. Paul begins chapter 4, and that's where I'm going to be today if you want to either open, open your Bible or look at the bulletin, for because I'm just going to walk us through it a little bit. Paul begins chapter 4 by building on what he has just affirmed at the end of chapter 3, that our citizenship is in heaven, and that Christ is transforming us to be like him. He says, if so, then let's remain steadfast. Let's stand firm in the Lord, knowing those things having the hope in that, uh, that transformation and that identity and that citizenship. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but standing firm is an active posture. It takes strength and resolve to hold one's ground, doesn't it? Sometimes when you're in that place, it can feel like progress isn't being made. You're just stuck. You're standing still. But in moments of struggle and opposition, standing firm can be the most important thing to do. When I was little, we used to play this game called King of the Hill. You know this? Some people call it King of the Castle. Rules are pretty simple. Whoever's gained the hill, whatever that is, piece of land, some place in the yard, whatever, you have to hold it. That's all you have to do. You just have to remain in place while all the other uh, players do what they can to remove you. All the energy of the King of the Hill, or the Queen of the Hill, which sometimes we allowed, that energy is spent to remain, just to remain. And sometimes in the church and in our own spiritual lives, that is the goal, to just hold our place when it feels like everything is pushing against us. Paul is saying to the Philippian Christians, the empire is against you. There are pressures within the community that are against you. Just hold fast. Stand firm in the Lord don't be pushed off the hill. I've been encouraged recently by uh, a number of com uh, conversations with people um, around this particular season in the life of the church. Some are people that are here, some are, live in other places, but have been watching the church. And often they'll say, well, how are you doing? Or how do you think the church is doing? And I must give an answer that sounds a little ambivalent <laughs> to them because... Uh, they always come back to me and they look me in the eye and say, no, 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 you're, you're doing well. The church is doing well. Redeemer is doing what it needs to be doing. Just hang in there. Or as Paul says, stand firm 
in the Lord. He then turns his attention in verse uh, 2 here to two women, Yodia and Syntyche, who are in some kind of disagreement. And uh, we know how this can happen. It starts small, right? It's just a little different uh, perspective on things, and then people get further and further apart, and they're not checking in and all this, and before you know it, you have conflict. Well, these aren't just a couple of busybodies or troublemakers in the church. These are leaders in the church. Paul calls them out as fellow ministers. He names them in a very specific way. They're friends. They're co-workers. They have contended for the gospel, and they have sacrificed for this. And I think their disagreement is not... Um, it's not something that can't be resolved because he, he calls them out as friends and he mentions their name. And generally in letters of this type, you don't mention the names of enemies, only friends. And so he names them. It's serious, but it's not a disaster. How often do you think Paul addresses the issue of unity in his letters? <laughs> I mean, here in Philippians, it's already been mentioned multiple times. It's certainly there in Corinthians. Uh, he has to deal with it in Ephesians. We know it's there in Romans. We preached a series on that, and it's on and on and on. This is something that Paul had to continually contend for, which is the unity of the church. Uh, generally, Paul wrote letters, at least the ones we have. We know he wrote letters to address problems. It wasn't just a letter to, hey, you guys are doing great. Hope you're well. It was, I need to speak to you. I need to deal with something. I need to affirm something, but I also need to offer correction. You know, we see Paul here as a pastor, loving and caring for the church, going to the mat for his people, urging them to unity because he knows how deadly disunity is. You know, I think this is, Paul, one of his most clear uh, episodes in his pastoral leadership. He's sacrificially leading, isn't he? He's loving them, but he's having to say something that might be kind of hard for them. Unlike Aaron, who just tells people what they want to hear and lets them sort of create their own disaster, right? In chapter 2, Paul shares a beautiful picture of Christ's outpouring humility, and, and Amanda brought that to us so well recently. His emptying in chapter 2, and here he says, have the same mind, have the same mind. He addresses these co-leaders who are in conflict with the very same words we heard in chapter 2. Be of the same mind. Identical wording. You know, he's recalling this image to them of the humble Jesus and saying, be like this. This is what your leadership is to look like. This is what your life together is to look like. Well, scholars like to kind of get together when they work over text and say, what is the purpose of a letter and generally, they come up with a lot of ideas. And so there are a lot of different theories as to why Paul wrote this specific letter and the problem he, that he felt that he needed to address. I think one of the things, though, quite possibly, was to address this relationship between these two women. I mean, he builds his case, doesn't he? He paints his canvas, this compelling image of the humble Christ who gave up heavenly authority out of love. And then just before he concludes the letter, he makes this point to these two women. Have this same mind. I mean, Paul's in prison. He may be executed at any point. And his word to this church that he loves 
Maybe, as far as he knows, the last communication that he can have with these people. Don't be divided. Don't be divided. Instead, come together and rejoice. Rejoice. By including this specific mention in this letter to the church, I believe Paul is saying that the role of healing conflict in the church, even the conflict among leaders, is a job of the entire community. Not just one or two folks, not just a mediation committee, but everyone, everyone. The unity of the church, including that of leaders, is the responsibility of all of us. And yet, that doesn't happen often, does it? I mean, what, what do we tend to do when our leaders are in conflict? We, we back away uh, or we take sides. And often the, often the leaders don't want help anyway to resolve conflicts. Paul here calls for an awareness of Christ's humble presence in such a way that every member of the community is called to a posture of gratitude, love, and joy that is a reconciling power. Um, a few years ago, I'm going to share an example, but I want you to follow with me because I'm going to have to turn it a little bit. But um, my daughter was needing a cat. And so um, she asked me if I would go to Orphans of the Storm, which is an animal shelter, and look for a cat. So I thought, okay, we'll go down the aisle of the little cages and we'll find a nice cat. No, they have a cat room. Now, I'm not a cat person. I was clawed up pretty badly as a child with, by a cat, and I'm just, you know, I've always been a dog man. I have a cat now, but he's the most dog-like of any cat you'll ever meet. We go into this room, and it's just an open room full of about 150 cats. It's like a safari. And so I'm sitting as far back towards the wall as I can. You know, I'm just pressed up against the wall, and Caitlin's just wandering around. She's great with it. All of a sudden, a cat fight breaks out. I don't know if you've ever seen a cat fight where there's a lot of cats around, but it was amazing. There was like a wave. All of the cats rushed to the fight, just rushed in. I almost left at that point. I thought, my, my time to get out now. But... That was a, I never seen anything like that. It was sort of like a fight on a playground. Everyone rushes in either to, to take part in the fight or to watch. And I think our, our, uh, our invitation to healing in the church is to move in, not to fight, not to take sides, but to bring about healing and reconciliation among our leaders, among our people, wherever there is a need. The church's unity is found in only one place in the person of Jesus. This comes up over and over again in Paul. You're in Christ. Your identity is in him. Your future is in him. Your life is in him. Remember last week we referred to empire or kingdom. That is the system of the world or being under the reign of Jesus. These are defining identities. And their importance is sharpened, I think, when the church is under pressure, when the surrounding situation is serious like it is now. And we have even more uh, clear choices that we need to make about our, our allegiance. E. Stanley Jones was a famous missionary in India in the earlier part of the, of the 20th century, and he said, talk about what you believe and you have disunity. Talk about who you believe in and you have unity. doesn't mean belief is not important. It is, but even more important is who are we believing in? Who do we have identity in? I mean, this sounds like Paul, doesn't it? 
where he says that. He told the Philippians in this letter, more or less, you're expected to worship Caesar as Lord and Savior in your city, but you are in Christ. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. He's the source of your unity and your joy. Because unlike Caesar, he humbled himself. He didn't grasp for power. He went to the cross and was exalted by God to the highest place. So how do we live in this reality? How do we sustain that kind of life? day by day. Well, in verses 4 through 7, uh, we have this beautiful passage that's so often quoted about rejoicing and praying and avoiding anxiety. Don't be anxious. Pray. And, and the result is that we'll have the peace of God. And that peace of God transcends all understanding. It, all tra- it also transcends all misunderstanding, the pastor told me once. It can guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That will be a protection that will hold us as we follow that pattern. Paul also gives them a thought exercise from verse 8 on. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I mean, he does, he does this in other places too. In Colossians, he tells them to set their thoughts on things above, not on earthly things. You know, this is an interesting list of virtues, isn't it? It overlaps with some of the fruit of the Spirit in essence, but it's different. And these are basically Roman virtues, actually. They're virtues in the broader culture. Paul knows they're being persecuted from the outside. He knows that the Christians are considered different. They're other And he says, do these things. In other words, if you do these things, then even your neighbors, pagan Roman citizens, will know these are virtuous pursuits. Do them. You will honor Christ by doing them. And it will speak to the people who are persecuting and pressuring you. It's actually a way to encounter difficulty, not to pull away from it. This isn't complacence or just be nice. It's not that. It says, dwell on whatever is true to know the truth, but then to bring truth in conversation with the virtues. In other words, bring the truth of the situation under the lordship of Jesus. For the church, this is how we bring every thought captive to Christ. We bring the truth to Christ, who is himself truth, and we place it under his reign. We don't deny sin or injustice or corruption in the world, but we acknowledge Christ's victory in the cross and resurrection and his kingdom, which is underway, and we bring them together. And it's in that place we find hope for the church, for the world, and we find the power to do the works he's given us to do. You know, we're giving a, a lot of thought to things these days, aren't we? I mean, it's a, if we're active on social media, hopefully uh, we understand how it works, how it's often not a place where truth is known but where countless conspiracies reside and are amplified, and where our own prejudices are echoed and reflected back to us. I mean, that's the way the algorithms work. This is the opposite of Paul's Philippian exhortation. Social media is really not about truth or nobility or righteousness or excellence or things admirable. And we should use it, if we're going to use it, with great care, with great care. So what if we do the things Paul prescribes here? 
He says, then the God of peace will be with us. Not just the peace of God, which we have from verse 7, which is so important, but the God of peace himself. It's a double gift, a double blessing to us in times which are full of challenge, but also full of God's presence. Amen.